0: You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 12, episode 15. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that tickets to the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering, taking place March 22nd through 24th in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, are now on sale. Join Victory Boyd, John Mark McMillan, Young Oceans, and many others for a weekend exploring the intersections of art, faith, and culture. See thebreathintheclay.com to learn more. One of the core markers of a person's identity are the beliefs they hold to be true. A person's faith becomes a fixed point from which they view and understand the world. But what happens when those beliefs are shaken? Or what happens when a person is confronted with a difficult truth that collides with or even contradicts their view of the world? My guest today, is storyteller and best-selling author of Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey, Heather Hamilton. In our conversation, Heather shares what it was like to undergo a nervous breakdown and a subsequent mystical experience that reordered her understanding of the universe. She shares with me how these unexpected encounters aided in her search for clarity and led to a deeper understanding of what psychologists call our true self. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is the Makers and Mystics podcast, the podcast for the art-driven seekers of truth and lovers of life. (music) Heather, welcome to the Makers and Mystics podcast, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Stephen. I am excited to be here.
0: Absolutely, I'm so thrilled to have come across your work, this incredible book that you've written, Returning to Eden. Talk to me a bit about your book, Returning to Eden, and what inspired this work, and and how did you end up creating this book now?
1: Uh, Simple, but big question. Um, So I'll just jump on in with kind of my story and how I got to here. So, yeah, I was kind of born and raised mostly in the evangelical tradition and have lived in the south my whole life and so kind of came up through that ecosystem and that culture here here. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Very, uh, you know, immersed in it and in my uh really like late teens and early 20s like found myself like in mega church doing that minute like big conferences, all of this. Met my husband who is also musician and music producer and You know, we got married in the church and had our three kids. And it just felt like, I don't, we were just like rocking and rolling on this trajectory that was unfolding like beautifully and wonderfully. And it felt like, I don't know, the fruit of our good decisions or following the right paths or whatever had kind of led to this, I don't know, quote unquote blessed life or whatever, you know, no complaints and it was great. And why wouldn't everyone (laughs) want to follow this trajectory? So, that's kind of where I was at. And about five years ago, I had just had our third child. And when she was about 10 weeks old, I essentially had a lot of really deep clarifying revelations about my life, um, really personal things, a lot of trauma that I had not, I didn't even know what trauma was. So to to even say like it was unacknowledged, it was completely relegated to the unconscious, like (laughs) no awareness whatsoever of what even that concept was or how it affected me or anything. And almost, I mean, I hesitate to say like through like divine illumination, but it felt like that. It was like, you know, a a metaphor that I kind of use is if you're doing like a thousand piece puzzle and all the puzzle pieces are just kind of laid out on the table and you don't have the box, that's kind of how my life felt where it was like, there were just some things about it where you're kind of trying to put puzzle pieces together and it's like, Oh, maybe that fits and maybe this fits. And so I kind of just done my best, but there were kind of all, all these seemingly like random or weird patterns or this kind of thing that would show up that I didn't quite understand, you know, like there wasn't a unifying thread, And it was almost like someone flashed the box with the picture of it up in front of me. And all of a sudden I kind of got this 30,000 foot view of my life and and coming out of it understood like, oh no, (laughs) there's a lot of explanations for the way I think and feel and believe that really have much, much more to do with my programming, uh, which we can like kind of get into that, Mm -hmm. and have nothing to do with what I believe is true or the way that the universe works or or anything like that. And so, this really, it happened very quickly, and when it did, it smashed my worldview and my concept of myself um, and sort of sent me plunging into this identity crisis slash deeply dark psychological place where suddenly I was like, you know, this Christian American career woman, mom who kind of had it all together and, you know, sort of had the normal problems that everyone kind of deals with, you know, but it plunged me into this place of like, severe back-to-back-to-back panic attacks that I could not get a grip on whatsoever. Mm. And this kind of happened over the course of a few days and sort of culminated into just this complete overwhelm with terror and me kind of finding myself in what I understood sort of intuitively to be hell. Mm. And I had a theological view about what hell was how it worked etc you know i had sort of the formula for avoiding it and when i found myself in this place it was just like a knowing like this is what it is kind of such an all consuming terrifying place where i was like i wouldn't wish this on anybody like name the worst person you know that you could think of i wouldn't wish this and and there was like a deep understanding of the grave and Universality of like pain and terror that every human kind of experiences and carries within them. And so that's where I found myself. And at that point, I knew that I was like, really, like my life was in danger, where it was like, I can't function like this. And so, you know, I went upstairs and I told my husband, like, I really need help. I need you to call 911. And the reason why this, why it was especially terrifying for me to ask for help was because. I'd had a counselor that I had seen for 15 years and I knew that like talk therapy was not going to treat this. And so the only other resource that I knew of that I could think of was going, you know, if I ask for help, I'm going to a psychiatric facility, which I knew would mean separation from my newborn baby (laughs) and my kids. And so, you know, I've really been trying my hardest to like pull myself up by my bootstraps that week. Um, And this was really like my surrender into like, okay, whatever needs to happen because I'm done (laughs) here. And so that moment of being in hell and surrendering and then really the asking for help, my husband did call 911 and I write about this in the book. And when the paramedics showed up on our porch, I opened the door and as I start just kind of word vomiting what's happening... The person across from me, when she starts speaking, I immediately recognize that she was a transgender woman. And again, coming from my very evangelical, conservative, deep south worldview, this was just something startling to me. Like I wasn't expecting this. I I hadn't encountered too many trans people like in my world and certainly not in a place of like extreme vulnerability. And so in this moment, the first thing that I felt was fear where I recognized, oh, I'm in desperate need of help, but I have preconceived notions about this person and the trust isn't there, Uh but what else was I going to do? You know, like this is the situation. And so as this woman starts listening to me and we start talking, I sense what I again immediately recognize as the presence of Christ, like coming off of her. And it was like time, everything just kind of fell away, and I felt to be sort of like held and contained in this benevolent presence. And so it was me sensing Christ in this woman, but then also having this awareness of something very deep inside of me that I was recognizing for the first time, which I, uh, again, recognized as Christ. It was like a mirroring of the same thing between the two of us. And so this was really kind of like a road to Damascus moment for me where, you know, my concept of God being like sort of a distant being in the sky that I hoped was close to me somehow or I begged to be close to me somehow— was kind of shattered and kind of the very next illumination was this recognition of the divine, like on the horizontal plane, like speaking to me in this body that I wouldn't have recognized and welling up inside of me and then also being all around me. And so, yeah, again, still being in the evangelical world right there. I did not have a word for this other than I was like, whatever this was, was the realest moment of my life. Like my senses are the most heightened that they've ever been, and everything that that is penetrating my senses feels like love. It was a very overwhelming feeling of love. Um, and it was probably several months later that I came across the word mysticism, and specifically like within the Christian context, like Christian mysticism, and it was like, that's what it was. It was a mystical experience. And so, that was sort of my conversion, I guess, which is a funny word to use, you know, because I had been a Christian for 25 years, but I understood this to be a conversion to something different, but I was—I still had the Christian language and stories and symbolisms and metaphors deeply embedded in me, and those were what I felt like was most accessible to me to, like, describe what had happened. Mm -hmm. So, I'll leave it there for a second, but that— that is what happened to me. And then from there came this desire to like communicate some of the deeper meanings I was finding in the biblical stories that I I didn't hear articulated, uh, you know, in the church or in the Christian voices that I was listening to. And so that is really, I wasn't at that time going like, I'm going to write a book about this. It was a few years after that, once it had integrated, but that's really what the book is about.
0: Wow, that's amazing. You know, it's interesting as I'm hearing you share this story, it just brings to mind how we can experience truth outside of our own personal frameworks. And I can't help but think even of a biblical story when Peter was on the rooftop, you know, and the sheet with all the animals comes down and he hears rise, kill and eat and it's interesting because he recognized that to have been a vision from God or a revelation from God but it was also something that completely obliterated his theological understanding at that time you know Jews yeah. they wouldn't have eaten the things that this vision was communicating to him so it's it's a very interesting Phenomenon, you know, when we have encounters that impact us on this deep level, when we recognize it as being something from God being communicated to us, but yet it obliterates our previous understanding. So, I guess a question in that for you is how did this experience change your understanding? How did it change the framework? of the way you related because you had said you you had 25 years of history, you know, and then in this moment of crisis or this dark night of the soul, this moment of encountering the love of God through what you expressed as an unlikely place or, or in an unlikely manner, how did that change your framework or how did that send you forward? Where did you go from there?
1: Yeah. well. Practically speaking, immediately where I went from there was to my counselor's office. I did about (laughs) like six months of what's called EMDR therapy. It's um, a trauma therapy where, not talk therapy actually, but where you kind of recall um, what might be traumatic or distressing memories with the help of like either like a light or some noise or alternating like paddles that vibrate, it kind of stimulates your brain to be able to bring like calm and ease into the memory um, so that you can like work it out in a more healthy way. So as I was doing that and then trying to integrate the truth that I saw and experienced with that experience of the trans woman on my porch. So my prior understanding within the framework of the theology that I was given was really that I was inherently sinful. I was inherently separated from God. And that the only way to like remedy that or bridge that gap was, you know, to accept this gift of salvation into my heart, like accept something externally into my heart. And what I experienced on my porch was this welling up of this goodness inside of me that I knew had always been there. It was sort of like waking up from amnesia or like waking up from a dream or something like that, where it was like the first time I had felt it, but it was also like immediately familiar, like this familiarity that I I recognized from like before I had been born. So I think, you know, some of the terminology that I use in my book is um, the true self. I think you could think of it as your soul as your essence and it was more something that had always been with me deep deep down that i had essentially fallen asleep to and so you know i as i went back and started looking through some of these bible stories i started noticing this pattern of kind of falling asleep to yourself and then the pr- and and the pain of what that separation feels like and the behaviors and the patterns that we act out in that sleep and then the process of, you know, salvation or whatever you'd like to call it, being more of like this awakening to something that was always there and then bringing it forth. And so that is how I started to understand the patterns that were being revealed in the Bible and, you know, through Christ, there's this, you know, with Christ, there's this kind of dying to the old self and this descent in into hell, like, you know, into the belly of the earth or in the Catholic tradition, it says, you know, he descended into hell and then this, you know, rising up again, where it's not, I think that we like to say it was the exact same thing, but it wasn't, you know, it was, it it was the same, but it was a little bit different, you know, where he's like walking through walls and, you know, ascending into the clouds and, and all these different things. So, it's a more integrated wholeness that we see on the other side of hell. And so, I started to understand hell not as like this eternal destination for people who didn't make the right decision or didn't understand the theology in the right way, but more of this like refining transitional period and this pattern that I kept seeing throughout the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I'd be curious to know as you were going through this inner transformation and as your own theology and your own understanding and experience of God was kind of going through its own metamorphosis, Mm -hmm. how did that impact your relationships within the community of faith? Was this something that created more tension or what was it like as you were going through your own transformation? Did you find that people were understanding of this change in your life, or was this also one of the difficulties that you faced?
1: I would say both. You know, it's funny because when I went back and I looked at the story of Paul, like on the road to Damascus, I think a lot of the times when we hear the story or when I did, it was like, you know, he has this encounter with Christ and then suddenly he's this changed man, you know, and we forget about like the three years that he essentially just disappeared. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it's like where yes. where did he go you know yes and yeah i understood that the story that i just kind of described to you this this mystical story i did not even really delve into that like with my counselor for quite a while like i didn't know how how to articulate it and as i was reformulating some of this theology in my head I did feel like this is going to be threatening to my relationships and to my tribe. And what I wished so much at the time to kind of get people to see was that I'm not trying to be a rebel. Like I'm not, I would, I wasn't, I didn't read something and then decide like, Oh, I, w- I want to start like picking apart my faith and questioning or whatever. Like I had the most authentic, powerful encounter that I've ever had You know, this this thing called Christ that we've talk about every Sunday at church. I'm like, I saw the truth like standing right in front of me. But yeah, it was an interesting period to try to navigate with you know, yeah, and the relationships with people that I loved very much. You know, it's not I'm not really a disagreeable person. And so And so to kind of intentionally like start throwing things into the conversation that weren't already a part of the milieu was like deeply uncomfortable. I will say that for the first time in my life, I sort of felt as I was trying to bring that voice of truth or articulate my experience in an authentic way, there were people who did respond to that. And I started experiencing you know, some of the intimacy that I didn't know had been lacking in my relationships. So for instance, I'll just share this little story that I share in the book. But um, as I mentioned, my husband and I, you know, were both very involved in a mega church. He was the music director at the time. And at that time I was intent on, I'm going to follow this voice of truth inside of me wherever it leads. And so I remember having this conversation with him where I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to stay a Christian. Like that's that's how pure this feels to me where it's it's you know beyond the confines of my religion and I know that I have to follow it wherever it goes. So, you know, we kind of had this sobering conversation where I was like, you know, if I convert to some other religion, are we going to be okay? And it was really the first time in my marriage where I was like, I don't know if this is going to fly, you know? Mm-hmm. And he just looked right at me and he was like, Heather, we're good. We're okay. And what was so enlightening to me about that is he had always felt that way, you know? And I'm, I'm not ashamed to say this because I, I think it's true for a lot of people within religion is, but you know, when I married him, I did marry him, but it was like, you have to be a Christian. You have to be this certain kind of Christian. Like there were certain boxes that you had to check before before i was going to like dedicate my life to you you know and i realized that for him that really wasn't the case that he had married me like for me and he had always felt that way but this is the first time where i had been able to actually experience that and receive that love and it, it was just striking to me to go like oh for the I've been married to this man for 10 years and this is the most loved I've ever felt is tell- is asking him like, are we going to be great? Like if I leave the Christian religion, and he's like, we're good, you know? Mm-hmm. And that honestly was so, it was freeing to me because there was a period where when people would say like, well, the questioning is fine as long as you blah, 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 you know, as long as you don't let go of Jesus, as long as you yada, yada, yada. And kind of knowing that there was a precondition on the table Mm
0: -hmm.
1: made me almost feel like I didn't want to give them what they wanted to hear, if that makes sense. Because Mm -hmm. it was like, well, if this is off the table, are you going to reject me? So I think that I did experience some of that, but then I also experienced people like I just described with my husband and certain friends who were like, oh no, we love you, you know? And I was so shocked to be like, this this is what unconditional love feels like, you know?
0: Hmm. Wow. You know, it's interesting because for those of us who would identify as Jesus followers, you know, we identify ourselves by our beliefs mm-hmm. so much. We identify ourselves with our worldviews, You know, and on a lesser level, as everyone does, we identify ourselves by our likes, by our interests, by the things that we're drawn to. And these things, many of them external things, these are the way that people come to know who we are. Mm -hmm. But as we walk through life, as we grow and develop, as we as you mentioned, as we go through our own personal hells, as we experience these traumatic things in life, and as we experience the ecstasies of life, these aspects of who we are, they often change. They often yep. change dramatically. and. You know, I've been married now. It will be uh, twenty years that we've been married wow. next April, and we knew each other, you know, two years before we we got married. And and I know my own trajectory, my own faith journey, my own spiritual journey has changed, developed. You know, both of ours over time, and so it's an interesting thought about how as these aspects of our identity change, you know, what is the you. Hmm. That when somebody says, "I love you," like you said, the you know the folks around you said, "I love you, what is that you that we're talking about you know when we when we strip away some of the externals, and I know a large part of your book, uh, one of your chapters, you know of course is is talking about the true self. you talk a lot about the true self versus the false self. I'd love to hear your thoughts a bit on that journey in your experience, and even as you've gone through this transformation, what is that like for you, this this true self versus false self and how you identify your own person in light of these external transformations?
1: Mm -hmm. I love that you um, used the word metamorphosis a few minutes ago. That's a metaphor that I really like um, to try to get at this. And I will say, prior to this experience, I don't know if those terms would have meant anything to me. I didn't understand, you know, I'd heard the word soul, of course, you know, but I kind of just associated that with what I thought myself to be per these external markers and even some internal things, you know, my thoughts or my feelings or the voice inside my head that sounds like my voice, you know there wasn't any separation between my soul and all these kind of other identity markers. So it's tricky because I think that when we talk about the true self or the soul or the essence of who you are, I think that it has to be experiential. It was something that I sort of immediately recognized, but I was like 32 years old when this was happening, you know?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I try to parse it out where, If someone hasn't like had an experience like that, where the self like reveals itself to you in that way, something that I, that I think is kind of useful is sort of working backwards into what it is not, you know, I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings, you know, like my feelings are communicating some very uh, useful information about my story About my programming, about the way that I react to certain stimulus in my environment. These are all like, it's very important, useful information, but that's not fundamentally who I am. So, when you are, you know, when you use this word metamorphosis, a metaphor that I have in my book talks about, like, you know, a caterpillar's transformation into a butterfly. We all know this, (laughs) but. A, a difference between you know what happens with the caterpillar and what happens with us is the caterpillar, you know they're not sitting around going like whatever you do, don't go into the cocoon. That's hell. You know what I mean? All the caterpillars go into cocoons. They melt, their bodies melt, and then we never see them again. You know, mm-hmm. and so if there was that sort of like resistance to the transformation you could imagine how terrifying that would be you know I'm going to go into this cocoon my body is going to melt off and then no one ever sees me again you know it's like (laughs) like, don't go there you know Uh, right yes and and so it's much the same with us is like we have our process of metamorphosis where I came to see hell as this like cocoon like Purifying fire, where everything was kind of broken down and transformed into something new. And then there's this rebirthing process where you come out taking on a different form. Mm -hmm. And so I understood what I call the false self, or like, you know, sometimes the word ego is used is, is just the forms, like our identity markers, those external identities that our brain uses to picture who we are, you know, in our minds. But those are constantly changing. And so if we're clinging to that, you know, like I'm clinging to who I know myself to be as like a woman, you know, a Christian that that was a huge one. you know, I'm a mother, I'm a wife. I'm, you know, I have these political opinions or these thoughts or whatever. As those start to change, it's like, okay, well, who am I? And then when we start to bump up against some of the major ones, you know, like my identity is, Christian and crap, you know, like now I'm starting to question some of the things that I'm understanding what it means to be Christian, you know, based on what I've been taught. So, what does that mean for my identity? And then what does that mean for me in the tribe, you know, Mm -hmm. because, you know, our nervous systems are kind of co-regulating with our tribe and the people among us. So, I sort of realized, you know, in order for me to figure this out, in order for me to become acquainted with the essence of who I really am, there was a period of withdrawal, you know, going back to, you know, to Paul's withdrawal for a few years. It was me kind of going, not that my attachments are bad, they're, they're useful and they're needed, but I'm noticing that when I'm surrounded by, by people that I love who want certain things for me, my nervous system can't regulate. And so it was kind of this withdraw into solitude and silence in order to really like get to know my deepest longings in my heart, to come into silence and, you know, as I was practicing like stilling my thoughts, noticing what wells up in me when I'm not thinking, thinking, thinking all the time, you know? Can I sit with myself in silence? And so I came to understand, you know, that pattern that process of sort of detoxing from all of our external identities to be more in line with what with what was being described as rebirth you know in the scripture where to me that became more of you have to go back back into the womb back before the womb the place in the f- discovering the face that you had before you were born before you know you subscribed to any teachings or beliefs or whatever who What was your essence before you even came here? And so that was what the process of sitting in silence and solitude was for me. It was familiarizing myself with that presence that was in me and animating me that I had kind of fallen asleep to.
0: You used the term our ego, and we're also talking about true self and false self, and so... This, of course, leads me to the work of Joseph Campbell and Mm -hmm. Carl Jung, both of whom I I love their work. I I read a lot of that, and I also notice you quote them quite a bit in your book. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to know how their perspective on religion and their perspective on true self, false self, and how they interpret mythically a lot of the, the metaphors of the Bible, how did that shape and influence some of your new thoughts and, and were they a big influence on creating this new framework that maybe you find yourself in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I will say, you know, going back to that story from the beginning, that encounter in hell, a thought that I had when I was in that place was this is the belly of the whale. Like I, I sort of immediately understood that this is what the Jonah story was talking about, mm-hmm. where, you know, up until that point, my concept of faith was more, you know, I believe in God, and so I, like, I have to believe in these stories of like monumental, fanatical proportion, you know, to, to prove that God can do anything. That was the orientation that I had towards the stories. And then when I was in this place, it was like, no, the story of Jonah that was already deeply embedded into my psyche was immediately what came up. And I understood the story to be a map of meaning, a mythical map that was going to help me sort of navigate my inner world and, you know, the landscape of my inner world and kind of give me the faith to stay there, you know? Of course, up until then, like, the function of the Christian religion had really been like to avoid hell for me, and suddenly finding myself in there and understanding this was the belly of the whale the place of transformation it was like oh no this guy this guy spent some time in here you know this dark night of the soul where you're kind of cut off from everything that you know there was time spent in there you know jesus for jesus there was time in the belly of the earth and so it was like sort of pumping the brakes going like there is really some stuff that I need to examine down here. In the darkness, I sort of understood intuitively that it was going to be this place of transformation, this sort of B.C. to A.D. moment in my life. I remember saying that very early on with my counselor, like this is a the old Heather's dead and and something new has come alive here, which sounds like romantic and wonderful. It wasn't, you know, it was like, (laughs) if the old Heather's dead, what does that mean for everything in my life that I love, you know? Yes. And so, yes, discovering, I, I think I came across Jung first, where he started pulling in the parallels of symbols like water representing the unconscious and i knew that that was true from my own experience because there were contents of my unconscious you know that were welling up kind of presenting themselves like you need to look at this you need to look at this and all of all of this had been sort of like under the water <laughs> in my life it was directing the trajectory of my life but i didn't know that it was there and so I saw that in Jung, understanding that the psychological healing process and the spiritual healing process were almost one and the same. I won't say it exactly, but like the metaphor that I use in the book is, sort I talk about like pipes, like plumbing pipes in a house and water, you know, running through them. Well, if you have a blockage in the pipe, inevitably the pressure of the water is going to build up, build up, build up. You might have a leak, you know, and then if you don't do anything about it, eventually you're going to have a flood in your house. And, you know, we don't look at that and go like, oh my gosh, like this is evil. You know, like there's no judgment. It's just like, of course, this is what happened. You know, like <laughs> it's it's very obvious when you can look at it that way. And so I started understanding like the process of fixing my quote-unquote, psychological pipes, as I was doing that, the spirit that had been prevented from flowing in me, that had kind of been repressed, um, sort of came bursting forward in this way where I, I felt my life energy, like, for the first time, really, you know, sort of come online. Like, my body felt different, my senses, you know, felt more attuned and more sensitive to the environment. And so, I saw that in Carl Jung. And then pretty soon after that, I saw Joseph Campbell describing things like Jonah and the whale, and marrying this, you know, psychology and mythology together in the same way that I was understanding it. You know, so Joseph Campbell will talk about it, but the belly of the whale, this swallowing. It's um, essentially like the unconscious swallowing you down into this belly, where you then. The old personality is is broken down, and all that energy that was being used to kind of sustain the personality or prop up the ego, keep it very concrete, as we were talking about, that's all broken down, which frees up all this new energy, which is your life's energy. That is then, um, you know, what happens from a belly. There's a rebirth that happens out of a belly. So we see Jonah being spit back out onto the ordinary you know, onto the shore, which would represent, you know, the conscious life are this life that I'm, you know, (laughs) that I'm, you know, having all the time, but now I'm bringing like this newfound energy and my life's vitality into the world. Whereas before it was sort of more a mechanical thing, although I didn't know that.
0: Mm -hmm. Sometimes the beliefs that are meant to lead us to experience God can actually hinder us from the deeper encounters that we seek, Mm -hmm. you know? And and it seems like that as you've gone through some of this transformation, and as your framework was altered, you know, perhaps you realized some of that, that some of the beliefs that are meant to to lead us into experience actually kept you from some of the deeper experiences. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to know as you've taken on what sounds like more of a mythical view of scripture, what has continued with you from your previous framework, or is there something that has remained with you from, let's say, the first 25 years of evangelical interpretation of scripture? Is there something that remains, or could you point to something and say, in the same ways that they, to use the metaphor, you know, even when Jonah or Jesus came out of the belly of the well, so to speak? there was still something familiar there, right? Mm -hmm. Even though there was a completely different appearance. Is there something that you feel like has sustained through the fires? Is there something that has remained with you that you can say, this is here now, even as it was then?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. I, and I try to do this, um, I try to articulate this in the book, that for me, you know, when I was seven years old and I, prayed the quote unquote sinner's prayer. And as I understood it, like accepted Jesus into my heart. That moment for me is still a very pure moment in that I recognized divinity within Jesus that I felt like that, you know, a portal to the transcendent had kind of opened up for me in that moment. Now, you know, what I ended up experiencing 25 years later is, is more in line with what I now understand to be like the process of rebirth. You know, when I was seven years old, there was really like no ego to break down. There was nothing really like to surrender, you know, like I had, I even committed my first quote unquote sin at that age. I don't know, you know, <laughs> but I recognized the sacred in this symbol in this man or even in this archetypal image you know that was mirroring something very true deep within me and so as i started to understand you know this concept of christ being more expansive i think for a lot of people it feels like that that somehow like diminishes jesus's status or something like that like you know we're bringing him back into line with with other teachers or other things or other religions or whatever. And to me, it was, it, it was the opposite of that. It was all the love that I had felt and like all the devotion I felt towards Jesus, none of that was diminished. It was simply like the love and devotion that I had was just expanded to everything else. It's like everything got an upgrade. The sacredness that I felt about Jesus, I now felt about everything. And so it it literally felt like, you know, Jesus kind of being this one exclusive way to heaven, you know, a very, very narrow point. It suddenly felt like heaven like welled up like a flood all around me. And it was like, Christ, I was like swimming in heaven. <laughs> and so um, Jesus was still included in that for me. And being the first person that I recognized that in, he still holds a very like, sacred and benevolent place in my heart. So I will say that that thread has not been lost. Um, I kind of see that pattern in other religions now where people will have like devotion for a teacher and, and I believe that it's probably the same affection and belovedness and devotion that I feel for Jesus. They'd feel it for someone else but it's essentially the same feeling just in a different form. And it's serving the same function to eventually expand. And so that we recognize the sacredness in all things.
0: Well, I only have one last question for you. Okay. And you know, this is the makers and mystics podcast. And I think we've covered the mystic side of things, Mm -hmm. but I'd love to talk about the maker side of things before we end and earlier, you used the phrase discovering the face you had before you were born. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know how creating and creativity in your own life puts you in touch with the essence of who you are or perhaps the truer version of yourself. How does creativity play into your own self-discovery?
1: That's a really great great question. Um, Prior to this, well, I I still am a video producer, so, you know, my career has has kind of been, it has been in a creative field, you know, where I'm creating things for other other people, putting together stories, doing promos, et cetera. The shift that I have felt in my own journey and trying to bring m- my own essence into my art is um, I can now sort of look back at some of my career and still some of the work that I do now going like, I really love that creative work, but I wouldn't necessarily call it art. Um, It feels more like design. A lot of times it's a means to an end, you know, like I'm going to create this work so that the audience will blah, blah, blah. It's in an effort to move the audience in some direction. So, you know, you see that showing up everywhere, even like in worship music. You know, my husband, you know, has been very involved in like Christian music or whatever. And a lot of it is, you know, I'm going to make this music so that, you know, you can go find Jesus so that I can point you in this other direction is trying to move you through to something else. And really that's like the function of advertising, you know, like this is an advertisement for Jesus. A lot of the videos that I made were like advertisement for Jesus or for the church or whatever. And the difference that I have found with art, you know, what I tried to bring through this book is more not as a means to an end as as an opening up to transcendence in that the goal is for like the reader or the viewer or whatever to be like arrested into mystery like there's nowhere to go it's it's a grounding down to the very core of of who you are where there's the experience of like the mystery and the rapture and there's an ordering that happens when you have those experiences where you kind of you understand your nature to be in harmony with all of nature And so it's like a static grounding experience that doesn't move you anywhere. It takes you much, much deeper into the here and now, which is like static, you know? So that's sort of the the energy that I tried to bring in the book. Of course, there's writing and there's scholarship, and I'm trying to explain things in the book. But what it's trying to do is untangle everything that moves you away from the here and the now and the sacred mystery of the now. And so that all you're left with is the essence of here, who you are resonating in harmony with nature. So that to me is like what true art is really about. And that's not to diminish anything else. I just think that it's a different function that is sacred in itself.
0: Beautiful. Heather, thank you so much for spending this time with me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. This has been an incredible conversation. So thanks again for joining me today and I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation.
1: Me too, thanks Stephen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach with music by Somewhere at Sea. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Heather's work and to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. Your monthly contribution of any amount helps me continue producing these podcasts and advocating for healthy dialogue between the arts and the world of faith. Visit patreon.com slash mystics to learn more. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating the world your art.